Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. A few years ago, I was uh, writing a series of talks uh, on a similar kind of uh, theme that I'm doing these next three Tuesdays. And I was uh, looking for a bit of inspiration, so I went down to my local pub, took my laptop down there and started writing uh, the talks in a a pub. A group of 12 people or so came and sat uh, next to me and uh, the way they were speaking and just there was something about them that uh, aroused my interest. So I began to eavesdrop on their conversation. Um, I I called it research really. And uh, just to hear what they they were saying. And in a moment of a bold inspiration, I I wouldn't normally do this, I'm I'm a fairly shy individual, but I decided I'd ask them a question uh, in order to help me with my talks. And I asked them, I fired this question at them, Uh, this is pretty much it word for word, I said, if you could pinpoint one thing above all others, what is the one thing that stops you believing in God and the Bible. Now, I introduced that question uh, by telling them what I was doing and who I was, that I was a minister. But I said, is is there one thing? You could pinpoint one thing above all others. What's the one thing that stops you from believing in God and the Bible? And the overwhelming response was not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Turns out that they were a group of senior and junior detectives from a nearby police academy or something like that in Putney. And they invited me to have a drink with them, to sit down with them, and so I took them up. And then within the group, I started chatting with a few of them. And as I chatted with one of them, this one detective said to me, our jobs are all about evidence. And I've never been convinced there's enough evidence when it comes the Bible. So I asked him another question. I said, have you ever seriously looked at all the evidence surrounding the Bible? And then he smiled and sheepishly said, no, he hadn't. He actually hadn't looked into it really at all. He just assumed that it lacked evidence. Uh, I want to sympathise with the person that is the sceptic, that is a doubter, that's someone who finds it all a bit hard to believe and in our scientific post-enlightenment kind of age we live in, in the 21st century in London, I do understand that it is hard to believe in a man who walked on water, who calmed storms, who raised the dead and turned water into wine. I, I get that. I sympathise with my doubting family my sceptical friends. But on the other hand, I'm also a little frustrated that 
so many of their arguments are so paper thin. Um, and they dismiss the Bible with just such sweeping, thin assessments. Um, they say that there's not enough evidence and they, they race to their conclusions very, very quickly. So many people I've come across write off the Bible on extremely thin, uninformed arguments. And we're often led to believe that to be a Christian in this day and age, you have to suspend all common sense and rational and logical thinking. I just wanted to look at this portion of Scripture because it does give us who have faith more confidence that what we believe is true. It's real. Uh, in Australia, we use the term fair dinkum. It's, it really did happen. It's true through and through. And if you're here today, uh, or you've got friends who are on the kind of sceptical end of faith, um, I would love them to come and to hear these talks out, um, the recordings and so on. Just on that there is credibility in believing in the Bible, the Gospels in particular, who Jesus is and what he did as fantastic and wonderful and as weird as it is, there's good reason to believe. Let me point out just three things uh, today from this text, and they all hang on the word eyewitness. You see it there in the second verse, but let me read from verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke, who wrote this biography on Jesus, this third gospel in the New Testament, wants us to know that he has done his research well and that he's interviewed eyewitnesses. And the eyewitnesses were those who hung out with Jesus. And there were also people who hung out with the apostles that Luke would have been a part of. He's a second generation Christian, if you like. He's not one of the apostles, not one of those 12 disciples. Perhaps most likely did not meet Jesus himself. But he wants us to know that he's interviewed uh, eyewitnesses. And what we're reading about Jesus in his gospel, and the same with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that they're all based on eyewitness evidence. It's common, co common but incorrectly claimed that the gospels were written hundreds of years later by those who never met Jesus. And they fabricated the whole story up. Um, there was an original message of Jesus being some sort of good teacher who challenged Jewish thought or Roman imperial ideas, but he never did anything miraculous. It was only later that Christians, so the story goes, that maybe centuries later that Christians embellished the story with a miraculous birth, miraculous events, uh, a resurrection, and so on. Uh, Jesus was never a man who did that, according to many these days. These theories, of course, gain a lot of traction in the press and in the entertainment industry. And perhaps on your uh, favourite documentary channel, you'll see 
a documentary on Jesus that says oh, he, he never did this and uh, he never claimed this and he married uh, Mary Magdalene and, and so on. And an obvious example is Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Um, but the theory of that book, by the way, was never new and never gained real traction in academic circles. Luke tells us that there, he has interviewed um, not, first, uh, not second-class ear witnesses, but first-class eyewitnesses. The word for eyewitness here is one Greek word that I'd love you to remember. The Greek word here is autoptai. Autoptai. It is the combination of two Greek words, auto and opus. Auto means self. Opus is I. Those who have seen with their own eyes. Luke was a doctor, a physician of some sort, and this is a medical term. Autopti is really the basis from which we get the word autopsy from. Those who have opened up the patient and seen inside, seen for themselves what is truly wrong with the patient. Luke has interviewed not these second-class ear witnesses who have just heard things about Jesus. He's gone right to those people who saw it with their own eyes. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, uh, Luke narrates the Christmas story through the eyes of Mary. Matthew narrates the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph. Most likely, Luke never met Joseph. Joseph was probably dead by the time Luke came on the scene of Christendom. But it's more than likely that he interviewed Mary and that's how we know her intimate thoughts about things and what she said and what she sung in, uh, in Luke's Gospel. He's interviewed them to find out firsthand what they saw, what they experienced. So that's very important to historians. The second thing to point out is that there were many eyewitnesses. He didn't interview just one, but many. Autoptai is plural. It's more than one witnesses, well, witness that, uh, that Luke interviewed. It coincides with the first word, well, the first word in English of the passage, many, in verse 1. It's the second word in Greek. Many have undertaken. Jesus' ministry was extremely public. Uh, he didn't do the miracles behind curtains, closed doors and so on, just to one or two people. But it was very, very public. Many people witnessed the miracles of Jesus. So Luke was able to interview a number of people who were there, who saw. We know, of course, and I'm sure you do, that uh, Jesus fed 5,000. And in those days, they just counted the men. There could well have been seven or 8,000 people there, but just counting the men alone, there were 5,000 people fed in that very famous occasion. 5,000 plus witnesses to witness that. 
There are other occasions, of course, where Jesus uh, performed the miracles in front of large crowds and so on. And so he's able to interview various people. And uh, Luke also tells us that many have undertaken to draw up an account. And do notice that these multiple witnesses were of completely different backgrounds. Yes, they were all Jewish or Greek-Jewish, Hellenistic Jews, but they came from radically different backgrounds. Matthew was a tax collector, totally for Rome, helping Rome, taking from his Jewish brothers and sisters. Peter was a fisherman, uh, a labourer if you like. Uh, Matthew and Peter would not have got on in normal circumstances. Luke, as I said, was a, a doctor, but he was probably a, a, a Gentile or a Hellenistic Jew. Mark was a scribe of some sort. James, who's responsible for the letter of James, was Jesus' half-brother. They came from different towns, different areas significantly within Galilee. And here they are writing and telling us the same thing. They're not changing things. He's interviewed all these different eyewitnesses to come up with this consistent, very powerful testimony. Uh, those of you who have anything to do with uh, historical criticism might know this term. Historians use the term the criterion of multiple attestation. That is where you get multiple different accounts that align a police officer investigating a crime will often look for different witnesses on the crime so they get the full picture. Never just going to one person, one source. Multiple witnesses give the story great credibility. And by the way, that is radically different to the Mormon faith or Islam with the book, with the, with the Quran. It all comes down to one person. Muhammad, or for uh, Mormons, Joseph Smith, or Siddhartha Gautama as the Buddha. One individual. Christianity is founded on one individual, but it comes to us through multiple sources, multiple eyewitnesses. And then thirdly and lastly, let's think about the fate of the witnesses. The fate of the witnesses. What happened to these eyewitnesses? So many of them were persecuted for what they were saying and what they were writing about. They were thrown in prison, they were beaten, they were mocked, they were ridiculed, they had all sorts of tortures going on in their lives and many of them as you know were martyred for their faith, but none of them, not a single one of them, it seems, recanted from their faith. Do notice the word, I, I mean, I'm really pointing out the word eyewitness today, but do notice the word, or the words here, um, servants of the word, and the word handed down. Um, handed down, by the way, is a technical term for handing on uh, some tradition. It's not just that they passed it on just like you would tell a joke from pub to pub with your friends and so on. This is a technical term to say they 
carefully handed over what they'd been entrusted. And this word, servants of the word, um, it might be a little misleading. It's more like administrators, people specifically tasked to hand over the word. In other words, the idea here is these eyewitnesses carefully handed on everything that they knew, everything that they were inspired to tell, and yet didn't deviate, didn't recant from it even to the point of death. Now, admittedly, the sources on some of the death of the uh, early followers of Jesus, the first generation of Christians, is a little hazy. But as far as we know, certainly from Acts, Stephen, who wasn't an apostle but a first generation Christian, was stoned for his faith. James, the brother of Jesus, was also stoned. We read that in Josephus. Peter was famously crucified upside down down with his head downward. Uh, Women incidentally were crucified uh, facing the cross, men facing away from the cross. Andrew died on a X-shaped crucifix. Bartholomew was apparently flayed alive. James the elder, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Paul famously beheaded in Rome. Now, it's not just that they died. They died all the way to the grave, they held, they maintained all the way to the grave that this really did happen. Why would you do that? Why would you maintain that? If you could get off being crucified, if you could get off being whipped by the the most terrible whips, the the word crucifixion, we get the, the word excruciating from the word the most horrid of death and yet they didn't deny they kept going look it's we're just skimming over this uh, text here today given the time frame we've got but within this beautiful first sentence it's one sentence in Greek there's lots of data to give us great confidence that what we know about Jesus what happened in the first century was real. It's true. It really happened. Luke's interviewed eyewitnesses and many of them and those eyewitnesses took to the grave without bending whatsoever that what they were saying and what they were writing about was absolutely true. I hope this gives us all something to think about and be encouraged here today. Let me pray, and then I'll introduce our last hymn. Our great Heavenly Father, pray for everyone here today. Thank you for bringing every soul here this afternoon. And wherever we sit on the spectrum of faith, Father, from the agnostic and atheist to someone who's just exploring the Christian faith, to others who are going through doubt in their own faith, to the strongest of Christians. Help us, Father, to understand the reality, the truth of what happened 2,000 years ago. Would you work on our hearts? Give us confidence in the scriptures and help us to see that the Christian faith is intellectually sustainable. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.